Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Good morning. The Politico Davos podcast is back today with another packed episode. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's Chief Brussels Correspondent. Today, we'll dive into one of the big talking points this year in Davos, crypto, and where the industry goes after last year's dramatic collapse of cryptocurrency exchange FTX. I think that the regulation is going to be probably tougher as a result of the FDX debacle, but I am a, you know, remember, I'm a centralizing traditional finance guy, so I welcome the regulation. That's Anthony Scaramucci, a big cryptocurrency backer and more famous for lasting, what, about a week as White House Press Secretary under Donald Trump. We'll hear more from him later. Our political team will also discuss the future of the World Economic Forum itself as its chairman, Klaus Schwab, reaches 85 years of age. But first, let's talk about an issue that's looming over this conference, and that is concern about the global economy. Our colleague, Jakob Hankavella, sat down with the global chairman of PricewaterhouseCoopers, Bob Moritz, to discuss the company's new annual global CEO survey. It reveals the most pessimistic outlook for global economic growth in over a decade. When we look back at the CEO surveys, not only this year, but in many of the previous years, we tend to have swings that are fairly radical. And we've seen this a lot in the last few years. Last year, we were overly and perhaps inappropriately so optimistic. I'm going to argue that maybe this time around, while there's pessimism in the global economy, there is some points of optimism. Those points of optimism go to we've identified the issues and we see them. This is not a surprise compared to, for example, in 2008 and 2009, where it was a surprise, a shock, and no one knew what was coming and, Kenley, whether it was going to last or become even worse. Second, you are seeing organizations make a much more disciplined decision around what to do. In the past, when we had that amount of pessimism, everybody would rush to headcount reductions and cut back on wages. And organizations are now naturally not wanting to move in that direction, which I think is positive, which is good for both labor and Kenley for the standing of these corporates in terms of how are they thinking about their stakeholders and engaging with them in a positive way, which is good for governments as well because of, the, of their need to serve um, their citizens through capital markets. The other thing I would say is the CEOs are continuing to invest. How do I automate my business processes? How do I upskill my people? How do I invest in technologies? So they at least have the right issues. The question is, how do you move that momentum going forward? So I do expect a year from now, it'll be less pessimistic, 
I'm not sure how much so. I wouldn't predict, nor can I bet anything on it. But I do think there's an opportunity. There's some bright spots in the survey that really are optimistic. This is now for CEOs to do something about it and to actually turn their organizations into a thriving machine while balancing the short term and the long term. What's your main message to these CEOs that you're meeting this week? The main message to the CEO community is that while there's pessimism in their minds and others, the need is to drive change in a much more sustainable way and disrupt yourselves before you become disrupted. Why do you think this outlook is so pessimistic? There's two basic elements that have come through. First is that you see a higher profile and concern about macroeconomic factors, volatility, foreign exchange, interest rates, and the like, all compounded by both supply chain issues, COVID, as well as the monetary and fiscal policies that government has put in place, as well as consumer demand coming back in a big way post-COVID. The second thing, though, is the geopolitical environment that has definitely become more risky for organizations to navigate through. And it's not just Russia, Ukraine, that has caused that concern, albeit it is a much higher concern in Europe because of the proximity of that particular action and war that we're dealing with currently. One trend that we've all seen and that you mentioned in your survey is the great resignation. It's been a bit of a mystery where the people that are leaving the workforce are going. Are they leaving the workforce or are they going to other companies? And if they're going to other companies, what's the key difference between those companies that are seeing their employees quit and those that are attracting these employees? Let's be clear on what is perceived as this great resignation. It is more of a great reshuffle than it is a great resignation. The amount of mobility, not surprising coming from generation X, Y, and Z, versus perhaps what baby boomers had dealt with, was a trend we were already seeing. Second is that organizations had to spend much more money to find talent. It's less costly today to do that through artificial intelligence. And second, there used to be a cost to the employee to change jobs. They had to take a day off. They had to go interview and maybe even interview over multiple days. Coming out of COVID, you no longer have to do that. I can do that at any hour over a video screen. So the cost of labor mobility has reduced significantly. So we are going to see continued reshuffling of the labor force. The so other that trend is here to stay. That trend is here to stay for people that have the skills. Yeah. So, so basically, there's less friction in the labor market. Less friction, more desire to move, and a much more aggressive organization. Now, our CEO survey would say the following. First, the CEOs expect about the same amount of attrition as they've seen in the past couple of years. 70% of the CEOs believe it's going to be about the same amount, even in this slowing economy. So many people assumed slowing economy, less employment, the power would go back to the employers. Not the case. It's staying with the employees. So organizations have to then respond. You're going to have to maintain wages at a higher level. You're going to have to provide the benefits. You're going to have to provide optionality and flexibility in terms of how you work coming out of COVID. You're going to have to provide skills at a much different level. And equally as important, and I don't want to forget this, For those that don't have the skills, how don't we leave them behind? We have a bigger gap that's going to come out, particularly when you look at those that don't have skills or gender uh, attributions and segmentations that might get left behind as you continue this larger digital transformation going forward. Now let's bring in our political team to discuss a bit more 
about the World Economic Forum. So this is really the day where things kind of get going. It's Tuesday morning. I'm joined with Aaron Banco from our US team, our national security reporter, and Ryan Heath, our editorial director. So guys, this is where it all gets going today. Lots on the agenda. Erin, um, what kind of event speeches are you going to be looking out for today? Tuesday is definitely a packed day. The first thing I have on my schedule is an appearance by John Kerry, the special envoy to the president for climate. He'll be appearing on a panel at the big Congress Center. And then, of course, we have, you know, just dozens of interviews lined up back to back tomorrow. And at that very same time, actually, that John Kerry's speaking, we're going to have another panel happening. Uh, President Duda of Poland, uh, the president of Lithuania, uh, and the president of North Macedonia and others in conversation with our own editor-in-chief of Politico, Matt Kaminsky. Ryan, what else is on on your sites on Tuesday? It's also climate for me. Davos has been the home of massive corporate climate commitments, and so I'm running a panel on climate accountability. But we haven't had a lot of progress towards net zero, have we? So I'm going to be checking in about how we actually measure if people are living up to their promises, if there's anyone who's actually doing that, and then what form of accountability is going to occur over the coming years as we start to realize that not everyone can actually meet these commitments. Really interesting stuff there, Ryan. Another big set piece today I'll be looking at is uh, the speech by the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. So it'll be interesting to see what she says about Ukraine, about current trade tensions with the US over their Inflation Reduction Act. And then later in the afternoon, we will have a special address by Liu He, the Vice Premier of the People's Republic of China. So the most senior representative uh, from China who's at Davos. So that will be one to watch too. Now, Ryan, you've got a very interesting story on Politico.com and Politico.eu today, and that is about Klaus Schwab, the uh, founder of the World Economic Forum. Tell us more. Well, I've got a target on my back now, Suzanne, that's for sure. This could be my last Davos. Um, Klaus Schwab has run the World Economic Forum for 52 years with an iron fist. He bats away talk of who might replace him. And I've gone and spoken to 24 people who are strategic partners at WEF, who are current and former staffers, who have known him for years, people who do the ghostwriting of his books, all sorts of insiders. And to a T, they are worried that there is not a succession plan. And many of those people actually believe that Schwab plans to stay in office till he dies, a bit like a monarch or a pope. And Someone even put it to me that he changes his will every six months and that he might try to control the succession from beyond this life, from the grave, arguing who his successor should be. And I found some very interesting things in the WEF governing statutes when I examined them as well. Wow, intriguing. I mean, tell us more about Schwab. I mean, what do you know about him? What kind of a person is he? Well, he has a humble presentation, but absolutely everybody says he has massive ambition. He really sees himself as one of only two people in history that has built a global organization as an individual from scratch. And this is the gathering of the most billionaires ever. It does gather dozens of leaders every single year. But what's interesting is though the WEF is cast as a nonprofit public interest foundation, there are some very special privileges for the Schwab family in its governing statutes. So if you dive in there if you anyone wants to do that with their time today. Article 11 and Article 22 are the key ones. And what they say is that Schwab has the right to nominate his successor, that there will always be Klaus Schwab or one or more of his immediate family members on the board of trustees, and that only a Schwab can give the okay to wind up the World Economic Forum. For example, in 
the situation of bankruptcy or it is no longer relevant. So there's a lot of private interest that is injected into what is notionally a public organization. And this is the sort of thing that a lot of WEF stakeholders are getting worried about. This is a man who, in a sense, invented stakeholder capitalism. And these stakeholders are saying, we think that the future of the forum is at risk. We think that some of this credibility is going down the drain because there's no plan and no confidence building around what happens after Klaus Schwab. Any response to this piece you've been working on, Ryan? Yes. So we obviously have rigorous standards here at Politico. So we reached out to every person who is named in the article. The only reply that we got was from the WEF media team. And they, to some extent, mirror things that Schwab himself has said before about high class and strong governance that's in place to secure the forum's future. And they insisted that it was the board of trustees that would make major institutional appointments going into the future. Fascinating stuff, Ryan, and be sure to read more about that on our website. Now, coming up, some people gathering here in Davos have been asking whether the glory days of cryptocurrencies are over. Are they? Stay tuned. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So crypto, I mean, eight months ago we were here, Ryan, you remember, and there was crypto all over the place, all the shop fronts in the promenade. They took over the church. The church literally became a shrine to crypto. And here we are. As we said yesterday, what a difference eight months makes. So uh, we're going to look at this in a bit more detail. Aaron, you caught up with one of the best known figures here at Davos each year, Anthony Scaramucci, well-known, a public figure at this stage uh, for his role, his short-lived job in the Trump administration. But of course, he's here in his capacity as founder of his hedge fund, Skybridge. And he's a big backer of crypto. Tell us more about what he was saying. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he was literally the first person I saw when I walked into the Congress Center on Monday, and he had these really nice, fancy red boots on. But I caught up with him for about 15 minutes, and he said some really interesting things. Sam Bankman-Fried, the former leader of FTX, is a close friend of his. I thought the most sort of shocking thing he said about his close friend was that he believed that he and his company had engaged in fraudulent activity. Okay, so when I was first asked about it, I said, fraud is a legal definition. I'm not ready to call it fraud because we don't have all the facts. From a legal perspective. From a legal perspective. I was asked last week, do I still feel that way? And I said, well... 
the fact that four of his senior executives have now pled guilty to fraud, I do think that Sam is a fraud, yes. Okay, but I'm not going to sentence him. Let's let the court... So he also spoke a bit about regulation. That's right. So one of the first things he said was that he had a bunch of meetings set up with the U.S. congressional delegation that is in Davos about what future American regulation for the crypto market might look like. I think a big question for everyone is who is going to be involved in putting that regulation together behind the scenes? The other thing he said about regulation was that he was a fan of it, that he believed in regulation, that he thought the crypto market needed it. And that's not something you hear from everybody who invests or is a supporter of crypto. So how do you build back trust post Sam? I think you need regulation. So that's That's what I think. Yeah, I think you need regulation because you're going to trust a centralized exchange. You want a third party, a federal regulator. Remember, none of the businesses that were in the U.S. blew up, including FTX. Mm -hmm. And so why? You had federal authorities and federal regulators on site looking at the books and records. You had outside counsel, you know, purifying the accounting statements and Mm -hmm. so forth. And so none of the businesses inside the U.S. blew up. It was only really the businesses outside the U.S. that, that, that were under stress. So I'm, I'm a proponent of the regulation. I want there to be regulation. What do you think they're right about his comments on regulation? I think that we've heard this before from big tech companies, where any industry that starts up with a lot of buzz, quickly, a lot of money behind it, it enjoys the fact that it's a bit of a wild west and that regulators struggle to keep up. Then when that kind of doesn't really work out, there becomes a need to say, oh, yes, well, we do support regulation. And then the fight becomes over whatever specific regulation comes forward. And so I think crypto is at that sort of early stage of maturing, where it's not yet ready to accept very specific regulations. And and Aaron's right, there is a tussle between different parts of the US government about who will be in the lead on the regulation. You know, some will do it tougher, some will do it lighter. And that's the arbitrage that all of these crypto companies are now engaged in. And mark my words, they spend a lot of money trying to influence these discussions. I think one thing to watch for everyone who's here at Davos, uh, you know, speaking about crypto, uh, talking to others about crypto is the extent to which the crypto market and leaders can build back trust, trust with investors, trust within the market itself, trust with potential future regulators. Scaramucci spoke a little bit about this, and he said it really comes down to individuals. It's not really about the market itself. It's about who's leading the companies, leading the exchanges, and leading different various institutions that deal with crypto. And he, I think he made a good point about that. But again, I think this whole forum this week will be about whether or not the people speaking about crypto can convince investors that they can trust them. So we caught up with Circle. That's a company that's very well known in this whole crypto blockchain space. And we spoke to Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Global Policy, Dante Desparte. Overall, the company has um, around 1,000 people employed in uh, more than 35 U.S. states and 12 countries. Um, Circle's a regulated digital financial services firm, the issuer of our digital dollar USDC, alongside other products. USDC is a digital dollar issued by Circle. Uh, Today, around $40 billion worth of USDC are in circulation. It's a regulated activity on equivalent footing to companies like PayPal or Stripe in the United States. Um, And that that digital currency enjoys integration across major global networks from Visa, MasterCard, and many in between. And so think of it like a company helping build the way you would send, spend, save, and secure in digital currencies um, for enterprises and businesses all over the world. Uh, That's kind of the core product that we provide. 
We asked Esparte whether he's optimistic about the state of the industry given the news of late. Several major crypto companies have collapsed amid a heavy downturn that's seen the market lose two thirds of its value in just 15 months. Investors have repeatedly been hit hard by these collapses, but none so much as the recent scandal of FTX. The Bahamas-based company was one of the world's biggest crypto exchanges until it collapsed in a matter of days after reports that it was using client money to fund risky bets. That's got policymakers asking what the point of crypto is. But Desparte is more optimistic. Well, I'm going to take a slightly more Churchillian response, which is that perhaps it's the end of the beginning. And that like any wave of innovation, it's now a 14-year-old innovation, um, the advent of cryptocurrencies and blockchain-based financial services. And 2022 was a blend of a dot-com bubble together with a 2008-style financial crisis. So along with those waters went the speculators, people who had perhaps no business model, what I like to classify as internet funny money. And what remains is very much a business and an industry and a technology that is enjoying two big trends. The first is convergence with the traditional financial system. Uh, The second, of course, is uh, a utility value phase, much like the internet itself, that the early days of the internet, you know, worldwide weight wasn't fun. Uh, So you could see the same kind of transition happening with digital currencies and blockchain as well. I asked him how he views the ongoing but piecemeal attempts by governments around the world to regulate the industry. So what you see across the Atlantic is the very real risk of an arbitrage or a gap widening, right? That whereas the Europeans have taken this multi-year, very steadied approach to building a body of law in the markets and crypto assets framework, which I have analogized would be to digital assets what GDPR was to privacy. The United States, on the other hand, has at domestically a fintech constitutional crisis, but we, yet, we don't yet have national frameworks for these innovations, but otherwise they're very well regulated at the state level. So those things need to be reconciled. And then you have um, the UK, of course, with now finally a government in seat, uh, a generally fintech forward government in Rishi Sunak and the chancellor of um, the Exchequer and others have sounded a more favorable chord around what these innovations look like. And so I think that just covers the transatlantic piece of the puzzle. But yet when you look around the entire planet, you see beacons like Singapore that have taken real deep whole of government approaches to regulating the segment. And so we remain optimistic that the regulators will get it right. The competition is here. The convergence with traditional banking and finance is here. And what will go away is, again, the speculators. While EU legislators recently developed a single rulebook for crypto, the European Central Bank started experimenting with a virtual extension of euro banknotes and coins, known as the digital euro. In fact, eurozone finance ministers were meeting, just as Desparte and I were having a chat. The bottom line is that EU policymakers are pretty enthusiastic about the project. Circle, less so. Yeah, well, look, I'm not a fan. In fact, some of my... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. more prominent uh, writing uh, on the question of should a country issue a central bank digital currency or not is to fall on the it's it's an innovation on the wrong side of history in fact the british parliament recently came out last year with a parliamentary inquiry in which they said central bank digital currencies might be solutions looking for problems 
And so my general analogy, it's better to have a well-regulated industry providing digital currency innovations than to have the central banks of the world functionally become high street banks or their equivalents. Lots of risks, societal risks, privacy risks, technological risks, and otherwise are going to be imported to the, to the back of taxpayers uh, for a science experiment with money. So you think they're straying outside their, their role, their mandate? Is Very much so. And I think they crowd out competition. Meanwhile, I think these are innovations that eventually will always err on the side of responsible actors in the private sector. Banking, payments, and others will be the providers of these services. We'll be speaking to more people in the crypto industry throughout the week. So make sure you keep an eye on our coverage through our daily Davos playbook and, of course, on our websites, politico.eu and politico.com. So we'll be back tomorrow morning with another podcast. And, of course, we'll be keeping you informed about the latest news, analysis and gossip in our morning Davos playbook. Thanks to our colleague Bjarke Smith-Meyer for his help with this episode and to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. We'll be back tomorrow.